the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. everyone happy monday ian simkins here along with brian from you can find us on the common good radio show on facebook or 1160hope.com but brian what what's the show all about really just tell us a little bit about the show and our first happy monday to everybody (laughs) i already said happy monday (laughs) the show is about uh we want to give a place for people to have a conversation we want to have a pace place where uh a lot of times people probably expect us as pastors to have all the right answers and you and i like to say you know what the world's a lot more gray than that we want to talk about things. Sometimes you and I will agree. A lot of times we will laugh, but we want to leave you thinking. That was a really good summary, by the way. Thank well, you. well <laughs> I, did not, I did not prep Brian for that question at all. Sight unseen, as we like to say. Uh, okay, so I shared with you something I saw uh, last week. Actually, somebody shared it with me online, and I dug a little deeper. It's a, it's a new Instagram account called Preacher Sneakers. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I thought it was a parody account. It's not. It's a real account. Kind of is, but but it's true. <laughs> it can't be a parody account and be true. I guess maybe My it can be. Is it's a parody of what's wrong with our world. Uh, I don't anyway. think you're using the word parody correctly here. <laughs> it's an irony. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's hyperbole. Uh, either way, so what the account is, and I have some opinions about the whole motive of the account that yes. I'll get into a little bit later, but essentially it's sort of like quote-unquote outing preachers who are wearing like thousand dollar sneakers and the, the few that i saw there's like a thousand dollar pair a two thousand dollar pair there's like two different guys with you know shoes that are almost four thousand yep. dollars and it's just sort of it's sharing the photo and then it's sharing the, the sneaker and then it's sharing the price tag and it's blowing up and yes. people are losing their minds and i'd love to know first off what was your general sense when you saw it mm-hmm. Like what was what was your posture towards just someone doing this in the first place, and were you surprised by it? Like what what was that like for you? So my original thought was I didn't I literally this is the difference between me and the world I live in of buying stuff at Target and stuff. I right. didn't know that there were sneakers that existed that were four thousand dollars. Right, and I'm not even being sarcastic about that. I'm being genuine. I did not know that there were guys sneakers that existed uh, that cost that much money. Uh, and then I would say I. Uh, I was simultaneously not surprised and and kind of appalled <laughs> all at yeah, the same right, time because right. um, and there are uh, certain types of churches out there with certain types of, of very celebrity pastors where this stuff matters. And in fact, later in the article that you read about it, I think it's at fashionista.com. Uh, when you read the articles, some of the pastors are pretty non-apologetic about it. They say, yeah. this is the type of clientele, uh, clientele is the wrong word, but this is the type of people that we're reaching 
Uh, and so if I went up there in, you know, a, a Target brand T-shirt, I mean, there's the article goes on to talk about, you know, $2,000 Gucci backpack, uh, $800 pants. Uh, and so <laughs> it just comes across really, in, really uh, kind of ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't surprised because I think we've become a little bit numb to these stories about a certain segment uh, of churches that, that this this didn't surprise me. Yeah, I, we, you know, when I first learned about this, I was chatting with some other people, and one of the things that I had said, just because I like to poke the bear a little bit, I was like, yeah, but some of these guys are saying that they didn't pay for them. They were yes. just given to them, you know, by the company. And someone at the table was like, why would a pastor in the first place be given yeah. uh, resources like this? And I thought, okay, that's a that's a great question. It, it, it raised all sorts of other questions about yes. maybe, because uh, you know, someone else said, well— if they have a good reach, um, then it would make sense that a company would maybe want to gift them that to get their product out. And then someone else said, is that what the pulpit is for? Right. And I was like, oh, shoot, that's a really great point. <laughs> you got me on that one. Yeah. It, I mean, it, and again, I, I wasn't coming at it with an opinion. Um, but it was interesting, too, because it made me think of a story from a couple years ago. I, more like five years ago now. I was uh, I was complaining to a pastor friend back home in Detroit about something. And I forget what it was. Um, but I was talking, it somehow was included in the story, something about the coffee that we served every morning at gotcha. our church. And, um, you know, this was this was the church that I was pastoring in Bartlett, Poplar Creek Church. Great, great church uh, in the western suburbs. And, uh, you know, it was about 300 people. I was complaining about the something else, but the coffee got mentioned. And he goes, hold on, you serve coffee every Sunday mm. for free? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, man, I would kill to be able to have the resources to serve coffee every Sunday. And I was... I'm sure what I was complaining about was somebody else's, you know, in the next bracket up what they were spending their yep, money on, yep. what I didn't have. And it was like in that moment, I was like, man, what to me is a baseline for him is a total luxury. Yep. I'm not saying that it's a completely one to one ratio here, but I'm wondering, like you and I don't really exist in this right, universe of right. celebrity pastordom. And if they're truly being gifted them, is it an issue as much for yep. you or does it still strike a chord like nope no preachers should be wearing four thousand dollars shoes period yeah. like is that do you draw a hard line there or is it more nuanced than that i think it's a little more nuanced like i'm i guess you brought up a good point what are they being gifted these for is it to wear them on the stage so people can is it basically an, a walking advertisement uh that feels wrong to me that feels like a manipulation of the pulpit is it somebody being nice and going hey why don't you wear these shoes you can wear them around town whatever else I, I don't know. I've been gifted things. I've been gifted, you know, time at people's vacation homes or whatever else. So I don't want to speak out of both ends of my mouth here, both sides of my mouth here. Um, and also the guy who started this account, he says something interesting. He says, I just think that if you're in church, you should know how your pastor is spending the money. And I think that gets at it a little bit, too. Is the church buying these things uh, or are these pastors, you know, spending their own money right. to buy $4,000 shoes? And what does that say about the pastor on some level? I don't want that micromanagement of my church over my spending habits. So, sure. You know, hopefully they can trust that I'm, you know, giving and spending. What, but you know, I, I, there, there is a little more nuance. Who's buying them for what purpose? Yeah. Uh, it just does play into a lot of the bad things about some of these celebrity churches, where these guys feel the need or, or even the desire, yeah, to have you know a two thousand dollar backpack. That either it's either problematic for me that either they don't even see that that's an issue, right? And that's one problem, or they feel like they have to in order to fit into this crowd that they're trying to reach. Both those feel problematic, not sinful, uh, but problematic to me. Well, and it's again, it's not it's not apples to apples, but like you and I, 
we dress differently when we officiate a wedding. Correct. It's not flaunting something. It's no, this environment calls for something different. I dress even differently now as a 36 year old pastor than I did as a 26 year old pastor. Does that mean that I'm not genuinely being myself or does it mean 10 years does something to someone and based on your context and blah, 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 blah. And I think, you know, at Poplar Creek, uh, when I became lead pastor, we, there was, there was some like, there was a lot of heartache and mismanagement leading up to that. And because of that, we responded so aggressively to say, okay, full transparency then. Yes. Because trust had been broken in the past, we as leaders decided, okay, we're going to go way the other side um, and maybe even too far. And in, in hindsight, I don't even know, but we said, okay, you guys get to know everything. Every penny, everything is going to be made available and accessible. And what you said is, I totally think that we do need to be trusting our pastors. But one, trust is earned. Yeah. And trust should always be married with accountability, I think. And that's tough because, <clears throat> yeah, you, you want people, because, you know, in a church of any size, you're going to have people who are, are going to disagree on exactly how every dollar and cent should be yep. spent. And that's where I think the trust, not only of one single pastor comes in mind, but like, trust that there's a leadership that's providing yes. accountability. And I think the thing that's unfortunate to me about this whole story is that it seems to be not only are more people more and more suspicious, but it seems in some cases they're right in being so, Yeah, which is frustrating. Yeah. And some, it, it's a larger question for me about some of these celebrity pastors that to be honest with you, it, when I see them written about, they're rarely talked about like the pastor of this church. They're instead Justin Bieber's pastor or they're oh, interesting. Kanye West pastor interesting. or they're this. And that seems to be the segment that is also in this article. Uh, And so I guess, you know, fair or not fair, because I don't know these people. I just kind of always raise an eyebrow when I read about any of them (laughs) that might not be fair. Um, But this certainly plays into that when you read articles like that, uh, that, you know, if I got to know them, maybe be like, oh, you're not like that at all. But it's hard not to read this article and see the way they're described and go, man, something just seems off. Totally. Totally. Well, either way, we'd love to hear what you think. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can go to 1160hope.com. You can also text us at 68683, and then in your message, first type CG for Common Good, and then your question, your thought. Visit Preacher Sneakers on Instagram. We'd love to know what your interactions are. How, how do we navigate this as the Big C Church, and maybe what are some things we can uh, think about and wrestle with going forward? Well, coming up next, it's been uh, 25 years. I can't believe that. Unbelievable. 25 years since the Rwanda genocide, and Brian actually has some very personal experience with Rwanda specifically, so we're going to learn a little bit more about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or 1160hope.com. Plus, you can text us, 68683, and then in the message body, type CG for common good, and then your thought, your question, your comment. Uh, We really would love any interaction, any thoughts, even suggestions. Hey, you guys should go after this topic or this idea. Um, Our goal is for this to be a a real space for conversation and dialogue, hopefully to not always tie everything up with a nice bow, because so often that's just not real life. And I think what better example would be than this this uh, it's not a celebration. Obviously, it's a remembering of 25 years ago, mm-hmm. just the unthinkable genocide in Rwanda. And Brian, you were telling me beforehand a little bit that you've actually been to Rwanda, and some of your experience and stories there, in light of uh, this story, and in light of I think it was almost. I mean, 25 years doesn't even feel real to me. Like I feel like it just happened a couple years ago. Yeah. Talk to me about what what was it like being there, and what was just some of the, the things and observations you made. Yeah, you go. You have always heard the steer, the stories of the Rwandan genocide, and literally, for those of you who don't know about it, 1994, 
at this exact time. It started the first week in April for over the span of only 100 days. Like Jeez. it wasn't a we're not talking years. We're talking 100 days and anywhere from 800,000 to a million people were killed. Uh, and most of them were minority Tutsis or moderate Hutus. Um, and they were and, and like you said, uh, fast forward all these years, my church has has linked in since we started with an organization called Africa New Life and Africa New Life is based in Rwanda. They only do work in Rwanda and started by a pastor in Rwanda, Pastor Charles, who is one of the most unbelievable guys. In fact, uh, I talked to one of the guys at Africa New Life the other day, and they said if he's ever coming through Chicago, he'd come on our radio show, and you will be blown away by Pastor Charles. Really? Oh, my gosh, just the accent. But, you know, <laughs> Pastor Charles decided this. he wanted to basically do something about this. And so uh, Charles started Africa New Life, and now it has blossomed into this unbelievable organization where um, – they go into specific towns and they pl- they start a school, plant churches, and sponsor children. Wow! And uh, for thirty nine, we have a we we sponsor a kid thirty nine dollars a month. Wow! Uh, it is completely transforms what a kid. It basically sends the kids to school. You literally go to these towns and you see the kids who get to go to school and who don't wow. by who's being sponsored. Wow! Like it's that much of a difference. And they start a church. They, they're always called New Life Bible Church. And uh, it has just blossomed. And so now they've started a a theology school. They've started a hospital. Like, it is unreal. And I actually had the pleasure of going with a group there uh, probably like five years ago and going um, to me and Kelly Brady, who was on here before. We went and we actually taught for a week at the theology school. And it was just the most unbelievable thing. You're like, how am I in Rwanda teaching theology to – uh, to people who want to pastor. It's just unbelievable. That's so cool. But one thing you do while you're there is you go to the genocide museum and you don't, you know the numbers, but you don't grasp it. And uh, to the Rwandans credit, they don't hold anything back. Mm. And so you go to these museums and you're like, the the depth of human depravity yeah. is overwhelming mm. because neighbors were killing neighbors. Family members were killing family members. Um, people who were friends are now on opposite sides of the spectrum and they are literally gunning each other down and machetes and this and that. Like there was no, it was that deep, right? A lot of times we think here we've got a divide, right? Between Republicans and Democrats. It's that's child's play compared to what was going on over there. And now you go through the museum and it is so solemn. I mean, I don't want to get too graphic, but I'll do once. We went to this one church where literally the the bullet holes were still up. No kidding. And then in the back, you go down into this like vault is the only way I can do it. And it is lined with skulls. Wow. And you're just like, I can't more than you could ever see. And you're like, I can't. And that, was a, that was at a church? Yeah. It was wow. at a church. And you're like, I literally can't grasp this. It, right. like thousands of skulls in here. And so the depth of, of human depravity is so obvious there that it's overwhelming. Like it's just overwhelming. Yeah. But now literally man, in the span of 25 years, Rwanda is one of the most, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the president there and the new president, Paul Kagame. He's been there. They he's been there basically ever since leading the country. And he's linked with some of these organizations like African new life and other things. Um, they uh, not even talk about the spiritual renewal, which I'll talk about in a second, but literally financially they've gone from, a place where a million people were killed to now having one of the best economies in all of Africa. No kidding. Like Rwanda has become, they've brought in people from the West to come and build their economy. Yeah. And now they are like in only the span of like 25 years, they're kind of like a poster child for what can happen with kind of African communities that are struggling. It's unbelievable. But beyond that, it is, 
so much of this has to be attributed to the fruit of the gospel, like the human depravity and darkness of 25 years ago. And now this, this concerted effort to bring the hope of Jesus, you're seeing the transformation that the gospel can have that we often talk about, Mm. but in many ways that, uh, along with policies and other stuff, but really this hope has really transformed a nation. It's it's simply unbelievable. So talk talk to me a little bit more about the spiritual renewal that you mentioned then, because I think yep. um, that's maybe the story that's not being told yep. as as globally as you know when people talk about twenty five years later. I would love to know maybe what you've what you've read, what you but also I'm more interested in like maybe what you even experienced yep. with sort of your link with this organization and and maybe with specific people there on the ground like. What what does that look like, and maybe what are some things that we in the West can learn from? Yep. So Pastor Charles, I've learned a lot from him. Like I said, he started African New Life and has become very close to President to the Paul Kagame. Okay. It's not a very big nation, right? And right. so when they see somebody like Pastor Charles bringing about revitalization, they're they're building into him, right? Um, and so he's become pretty um, powerful. Is not the right word, but pretty connected. Um, and Pastor Charles said one of the things we had to talk about all the time and that is just taking root is the concept of forgiveness. Mm. And you start to hear him talk and you're like the concept of forgiveness for, for neighbor who killed neighbor yeah, no or now these people sit in communities together and churches together. It's not like the, the Hutus live over here and the Tutsis live over here. They're, they're back to living amongst each other. Right. And how do you broker peace other than than introducing this concept of forgiveness and moving forward. Mm. And it's on, it, it is pretty crazy. And let me tell you one more story. I just talked to our church about this yesterday through Africa new life. We've begun sending money to one particular pastor of one particular church over there. Uh, new life Bible church in Kayanza, which is part, which is an area in uh, Rwanda. And this guy from Africa new life sent me their brochure the other day. So literally I think our church sends them, 175 bucks a month or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Not, it's, it's not a huge amount, but over there, it's a huge amount. Uh, they have 250 people going to the church in the last quarter. They've seen 90 people come to Christ and have done 45 baptisms. No kidding. So there's like a revival over the 25 years like that, that country 25 years ago, probably, I know you can't shut a country down, but it should have been forgotten and let die or some other country should have gone in there and taken it over. Mm. And now that you're seeing this this beautiful fruit out of such a darkness, it gives hope. You know, us pastors are always looking for stories to tell. Yeah. It's a story for personal lives of just despair and destruction of the beauty that can still come out of that. Yeah, no kidding. Of, you know, we all like to say about the craziness in our country that doesn't even hold a candle to what went there, but there's still darkness here. Yes. But having hope that things can come out of this, I think Rwanda, you can hold it up. It's not perfect. There's still bad stuff there, but... You can hold it up that the gospel still makes a difference. Good people still make a difference. And bad things, terrible things can turn uh, and God can do a work in them. Yeah, totally. That's such a good call, too, that remember that no matter how dark it gets or seems, mm-hmm. we can still be a people of hope. And what what an example in Rwanda. And I would encourage you, if you're listening, you can find this article on uh, ChristianPost.com, the Rwanda genocide 25 years later how a Christian nation overcomes its troubling past. Yep. It's, a, it's a really, it's long, but it's it's a really great read. And there's a bunch of articles there, but again, like this, they're doing it because this is 25 years ago this week that oh, it man. all started, and it's just crazy. Definitely encourage you to take some time to read that. 
Coming up next, we're going to share an article by David Fitch from Northern Seminary. He wrote a blog called Three Ways We Must Reimagine Our Ecclesiology in a Post-Willow Creek World, which is something that you and I have been wrestling with, I yep. think, ever since we started this show in January. So I yes. uh, we'll hope you stick around for that. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, Brian. I ask you every time the song is played, name this band. No idea. I don't even remember what I had for breakfast today. Like right now, I'm like, did I eat today? Literally, we've had this show for three months, and so, every single time the song plays, I ask you, and I tell you. And so we say, have a, we have a little less, I'd say, than what an hour and a half left in the show or something. We could spend the entire hour and a half in silence of me trying to think of the name of this of this band, and it wouldn't. I would never get. I'm it. I'm going to tell you again just to stay consistent, and okay. then next time it shows up, yep. I'm going to ask you. Are you ready for it? I am. Tell me if this rings a bell. You too. Oh my gosh. Nope. The band is called REM. Oh, this game is getting so much less fun. <laughs> Modest Mouse. Modest Mouse. Does that even sound familiar? Yeah, because we made jokes last time about Disney World and Humble. Okay. Modest Mouse. Next Modest time. Mouse, I believe in you. We're going to do this before the end of our first year of the show. Hey, Josh, next time you play this song, could you just start whispering into don't. my ear, Modest Mouse, so okay. I don't embarrass myself? For anyone curious, Josh is our producer. Brian isn't just losing his mind. <laughs> this Josh talking. guy. <laughs> hey, Josh in the sky. Anywho, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. You can text us at the number 68683, and then in the message body, write CG for Common Good. And then your comment, question, thought, or suggestion even. Brian also really wants a joke in there, so if you have a funny joke or a pun. A meme. A meme. Can you text memes to a text line? Maybe a pun. You're the pun guy. I just said pun. Sorry, I should listen. I should listen to the Someone, show. Someone's on ESPN.com right now. I should and listen it's not to Ian. Here we go. All right. So David Fitch, who is somebody that both of us follow, he's a uh, he's a local dude who I think is is brilliant. He's at Northern Seminary. Yeah. A, a bunch of my friends are either on staff there or went there. A lot of love for Northern Seminary. Actually, like the sister school to Judson, which is my alma mater. I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, true. Okay. So he uh, he wrote an article. Um, called Three Ways We Must Reimagine Our Ecclesiology in a Post-Willow Creek World. Mm. And uh, this has been something that he's been writing about extensively. So, again, this isn't just somebody who's, like, tweeting some thoughts. This is, a, uh, I think, um, an incredibly wise, educated guy who I don't always agree with, but yep. I think has some really great insight. And I'm, I'm curious, even just, like, anecdotally, based on what you've seen him tweet and post, um, how much or how little have you agreed with kind of his general posture towards all of this? You know what? It's funny. Uh, I'm much newer to him in terms right. of reading him or following him on Twitter or whatever else. You've got a lot more history. Uh, and I, and then even in terms of the show, like, hey, we'd like this someone we'd like to have on sometime. Uh, I, he strikes me as someone that I tend to agree with, but I know if I agree with him too much, it could get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I like that you, definition, you know, though. You know those people in your life where you're like, yeah, what they're saying really resonates, but I know right. if I go too far with this. So, uh, no, I look forward. Hopefully, someday we'll be able to have him on because what he writes in this article right here on Missio Alliance is uh, is is very thought provoking. I tend to agree with a lot of what he's saying. There's things in it I don't necessarily agree with, but totally. um, but I think he's got the right direction on this. So, and just so that we're clear, the word ecclesiology has to do with the church, how yep. we organize the church, how we think about the church, or theology of the church. So, if you hear the word ecclesiology, it's just a fancy pants word for. Church. Doctrine of the Church, right? Yep. So, so he he gives just three. Um, so I want to spend some time with each of the three, and he's talking about it specifically in the posh. Like he's in Chicagoland, so he's thinking through sort of a uh, you know once we've seen some of these kind of mega systems fail and fall apart, yes. uh, and not even just fall apart, but some of these pretty public 
discrepancies, public issues and hurdles. He's writing with that in mind. Uh, but I think his application actually could be a whole lot more broad. Yeah. So uh, the first one here, he says, let's start with power. Let's reexamine how we as evangelicals view power and structure our organizations around power. What do you, yeah. th- what do you think about this one? Oh, and this is the big one, I think. You really? know, he's coming out of – he's trying to say that, that the evangelical uh, church – uh, needs to change in light of what we've seen in Harvest and Willow, because these are such big flagship churches that let's let's do an autopsy, even though those churches still exist. Let's do an autopsy of what they were, whether it be Willow, Harvest, you know, Mars Hill, whatever else it might be, and say, where are the problems? And, and a lot of the problems of those were not just power, but um, uncontained power and huh. uh, power that didn't have any. There were no checks uh, to the power, no checks and balances. Uh, whether it be Bill Hybels having an isolated life where he could live kind of a double life, whether it be James McDonald, who the power seemed to be uh, wielded and used for his own purposes or Mark Driscoll or whatever else it might be. And so what Fitch is saying here is like, man, if you look at the gospel, the power is always to bring up the person below you. It was never a top-down deal. If anybody could have wielded power in this world, it was Jesus, and yet Jesus was sacrificial. Jesus uh, used his authority to, to serve others and sacrifice, and what Fitch is saying is, like, that's got to be how we organize the leadership within our church. I love what he says, too. He quotes Mark 10. He says, but, you know, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be the first among you must be a slave of all. Yes. He says, this is not just a proof text, but a predominant theme in the way the New Testament thinks about power. Power in the kingdom is different than in the world. And he kind of goes on to unpack this idea of mutual submission, which yes. is something that both you and I have, I know, preached about. But thinking about this through a leadership system and structure. Yes. Is something that like make, makes so much sense at a cerebral level, and you think, okay, so how does that actually run then right. as a quote unquote organization? Uh, I think the, one of the things that I love about Fitch is he's not just an idealist, although some may assume that. Right. Uh, I think he makes some really, really great points about a massive need for rethinking the church's role and interaction with this this idea of power. I think yeah. it's absolutely right. That's good. He also says number two, let's unprogram the church. Mm. Unprogram the church. In fact, before before we started recording, you said something like. I actually think my church could be a little more programmed. Right. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that because so, we're, we're in very different contexts. We are. So I started our church along with some other people uh, nine years ago. And I think when you start a church, you're just trying to get Sunday done, you know, small groups. And, and the question becomes, what programming then do you add? And we've been very slow to add programming. And I've kind of had the feeling as of late, our lack of programming is hurting us. But I totally get what he's saying that some churches are so over-programmed that people could be in your church building seven days a week. Yeah, They could right. be there all the time, and I think that's what he's getting at. I would say probably the answer is we've got to figure out not only the right amount of programming, but what is the purpose, what is the strategy behind programming. Mm. If it's to help your people understand the Bible more and to grow as disciples, then, then do that really well. Don't throw a lot of things at the wall just to keep people busy. If it's to get people living as everyday missionaries out in the world, then use your programming to get them out and to train them and equip them. So I, I totally – I'm all about being lean. I think we need to understand people are overscheduled mm. right now. People are super busy, and we can either fight that or we can be much more strategic about our programming. So I think a lot of pro- churches that have been around for a while do need to uh, need to um, remove some programs. Some like mine who haven't been around that long, I think the answer is to be really strategic about your programming 
uh, and and think about what's the sweet middle spot of between underprogrammed and overprogrammed. Totally. And he and he's really I think balanced here because he says he's quoting from Acts two here and he says they they met at the temple, the center of his presence in Jerusalem, but they also broke bread together, as some manuscripts say, from house to house in the neighborhoods. They found favor among all the people, meaning they spent time with people outside their Christian fellowship. The mm. Christian life was practiced as a whole way of life, which yes. again. I know you've preached this. I have. I know we've said this exact phrase, and yet my wife and I even were just talking about, like, how do we how do we embody this more so it's not just yeah. Ian goes to church, does some church stuff, then comes yep. back home, yep. thinking about that with two little ones. How do, we, how do we embody this as a whole way of life and not just we're going to offer one more, you know, class or one more program, all of which I have, you know, often some part in helping, like, create. Yes. I love all the stuff that we do at the Yellow Box. I, I, I think we're doing some really incredibly cool stuff. And yet the challenge sometimes is how, how do we actually help, uh, you know, what he's saying, like move it back to the neighborhoods. And so often the answer, this is where this becomes difficult, and this is how over time churches become overprogrammed, is that the answer is always more, right? Like the answer is always, well, we want our, we have these great ideas. Like we want our people to know the Bible better. What is always the answer? Let's add another Bible class. Let's yeah, add this. Right. And over time, that's just a lot of programming and, and you start you know, the, the kind of the tail wags the dog, if you will. Yep, totally. The last one, I think um, we could spend a whole hour talking about this, and maybe yep. we will someday. Uh, he says, let us be a humble presence. Mm. What does that mean to you? You know, I think it goes back to the power one, too, but this one is more out in the culture. Like, uh, our evangelicals right now, are are Christians known for their humility? Yeah, uh, right, right. It's, he says here, it is more than apparent after the fall of leaders at some of these churches that the leaders did not receive criticism well. It is a representative of a church-wide problem in America. Like, uh, we follow a Savior who was marked by a lot of things, one of them humility. And so uh, do we always have to be right? Do we have to pick every fight that we can? Is everything a battle? Can we take constructive criticism and and handle it well? All of these things, I think what he's saying is the church organizationally, but also the leaders and just the people who make up the church— uh, if we are truly following Jesus, need to be the picture of humility for the church, for the people around us. And I think too, like it's one thing to talk about the power of humble presence; it's a whole different thing to actually embody it. Because as you have said numerous times on this show, sometimes even the expectation as pastor is to have all the answers. Exactly. And if we feel that, then certainly our churches and communities feel that. Yep. How do we assume? And I think we can. There's hope, I think, for the Big C Church to assume a posture that listens more, that asks questions. And actually, we're going to talk about this a little bit coming up in the next segment because we just wrapped up a series based on a Scott McKnight book about Mm. being open to the Spirit. And does being open to the Spirit mean that sometimes we shut our mouths? Sometimes we like break bread with people who look and talk and act and even, dare I say, believe Mm. way differently than we do. As you know, professional practitioners, yep. as pastors, sometimes that can be really hard because there's a lot to be done at the address of the church. Yes. And uh, I think to invert some of that, man, oh man, what a call and what a what a difficult thing, Powerful. but a necessary thing for us to lean in towards. We should, we should totally have David Fitch on. I would love that. <laughs> if you're out there, Fitch, if you're listening, him. we'd love to have you. Uh, well, I mentioned coming up next, we're going to talk just a little bit about what we preached last weekend. And uh, if for nobody else, this will be interesting for you and I. <laughs> by, la- by last weekend, you mean yesterday? <laughs> yeah, holy cow. Yeah, it must be Monday. Holy, yes. holy cow. Well, that's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. 
You can also text us any thoughts or ideas or questions or feedback at 68683. And then in the message body, type CG for Common Good, followed by anything that you'd like to share with us. And uh, we do want to be learners, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, you and I are both pastors. But sometimes, like, I, I've had some good feedback from friends like, man, I'd really love for you guys to talk about this. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I never would have even thought about that. That's such good feedback. So we really would love to hear from you. Plus, any review on a podcast apparently helps. I don't really understand how podcasts work. <laughs> just, just yet, but I hear other people say yes, like and review that helps. So uh, it helps us that people subscribe. Oh, it does. Okay, and then uh, it helps us even more if people give us good reviews. That only goes well. And so, if you're a fan of the show, even if you're not going to podcast it, in all honesty, it would be great for you to go to wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe to it, rate it, review it, and uh, that it becomes helpful. And then we'd actually like you to listen to the show while you're on your podcast. Have you, you subscribed to it. to it yet, Brian? I have. <laughs> I have. Just want to keep you accountable based on uh, previous conversations. I'm going to do it from all sorts of different accounts. And <laughs> right. Well, now that feels shady, but all right. Well, it's, it's called gaming. This is true. Right? By the way, was that music? That intro music in Modest Mouse? It was not Modest oh. Mouse. Good try, though. I do really appreciate the effort. Uh, all right. So it's Monday. And we've joked a little bit about some of the struggle for pastors on Mondays. It's hard. Um, we have a service on Monday night, so my, like, quote-unquote, like, weekend isn't over. Oh, no. If you're curious or interested, uh, you can join us at the Yellow Box in Naperville. We have a meal that you can purchase at 530, and then we have a service at 630. Okay. That's for people that, you know, if they're traveling over the weekend or whatever. I've actually really loved our Monday night services. Either way. That's cool. We both preached on Sunday. We did. And uh, you, I think, are wrapping up or just wrapped up a series on Jonah. We did. I'd love to hear how it went. What was it? What was it all about? I loved it. It was really fun. I think I'm realizing how much I enjoy just tearing into Old Testament books, especially ones that are kind of story-driven. Yeah, right. I really enjoy it. But Jonah chapter 4, you know, if you know the story of Jonah, it's about a lot more than a guy and a whale, right, or a big fish. It's about a lot more than that. And it's really about uh, Jonah's desire to run away because he doesn't want to go to the Ninevites because he thinks God might show them grace. Hmm. Because God tells him to go there and tell them judgment is coming. And this beautiful thing, go read it, people. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. In his anger, Jonah says some of the most beautiful things about God, but the irony is that Jonah's saying these as bad things. Hmm. But he says, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in love, you're great in compassion, you're, you're relenting to send calamity, and all those, you're like, yeah, these are all true. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, the point of my message was this, that, that Jonah, one of his struggles was not that he didn't necessarily think the Ninevites deserved grace, because the Ninevites actually didn't deserve grace. That's the whole point of grace. But Jonah could not see that Jonah needed the same grace. That's good. And that was kind of the point. And so I spun it forward and basically said this. I said, listen, there's two sets of people probably in here, and we want to land in the middle, but I'm going to overgeneralize and say there's two sets of people. Hmm. There are people in here who, who your problem is you don't believe that God could ever love you. No matter how gracious we talk about him being, we talk about Jesus, we're about to take communion on that yesterday. You just don't believe that God could love you. And I'm here to tell you, I want to give you, I want to encourage you. And I talked all about Jesus and that you can't outsend the grace of God and all this stuff. So I want to encourage you. I said, there's people on the other end of the spectrum. You're like Jonah. Uh, your problem is not that you don't think that God could love you. Your problem is you think, how could God not love me? I'm awesome. I'm great. <laughs> and that was Jonah's problem. Yeah, Jonah right. wanted a God in his own image. And Jonah wanted to be able to say, God, this is what you should do. And Jonah got mad when God didn't do what he said he should do. And I used the old quote that basically said, uh, if, the, if the God that you worship doesn't, um, 
doesn't challenge your beliefs, your priorities, your choices, your politics, your money, then you're serving a God of your own image and not a God of the Bible. The God might just be and you. people were just yeah. kind of like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. So I loved it, man. It was really fun. I loved the book of Jonah. And it was a very clarifying thing for me because then I had to ask myself, you know, uh, which one of these am I? And one last thing, I actually, one of the first times from my mess- from my sermon was influenced by our radio show. Oh, really? Because I used the story we talked about last week as an open and a close about Christopher Watts, the guy who killed his wife and two kids oh, right, in Colorado. Right. He said he found Jesus. And you and I had a whole talk about that. That's like, right. do you feel good about that or does that make you angry? And that was my open. And I basically said, this is the story of Jonah. Wow. Jonah said, I don't want the Ninevites to find your grace. When in reality, Jonah needed to go, wow, I need that grace. That's and, good. And so I used that as an open, and it was, it was pretty solid. It was the first time I used show content. So Dang, Pastor Brian just took us to church, I y'all. Did. Man, oh, man. You can <laughs> podcast that. As well. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> good plug, Your man. turn. Your turn. Preach for me. You did uh, so, a Holy yeah. Spirit. Yeah, so we did a, a short three-week series called Open based on Scott McKnight's book, Open to the Spirit. Awesome. And I cannot encourage you enough because there are a few resources about Topics like the Holy Spirit written by academics. Yeah. It, he merges the two so beautifully. I, it's really, really good. So we, uh, we've we been talking about this last week in particular was open to the God who empowers. So last mm. week we were talking about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Yep. And like you were saying, like that's going to readjust some priorities and some really practical things. But it isn't just for our own benefit. Yeah. The power of the Holy Spirit is meant to like empower us to do something different. And uh, so we talked about Mark two, the story of the paralytic lowered through the roof in the middle of Jesus's Ted talk, right? Like what is, what is this all about? And the the thing that, the thing that uh, I I found so surprising. So they lower this guy who's clearly paralyzed and Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. And I imagine overhearing that if all the people were like, yeah, that's not why he's here. He didn't come for an invisible miracle. He came for a visible one. And I, I wondered, I, this is all conjecture, but I wondered if the guy thought, man, if I, if I could just get my legs restored, that's my greatest need. And Jesus says, I couldn't disagree more. Mm, Your greatest good. need is a right relationship with God. Now, yes. spoiler alert, he does heal him physically, yes. but he like inverts the order. Your greatest need, nothing is greater than a right relationship with God. Mm. And the thing that I also found really impo- like significant is that it says that Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends, yep, the ones the on, the, guy, yeah. on the ceiling and the roof, right? Like sometimes that's why we do life together, mm-hmm. that sometimes I need you to believe for me when the bottom drops out, when I feel like my life is unraveling. And when we do that together, it raises the collective water level of faith because we remind each other God's not done with you yet. Yeah. You're not alone. Like we're in this together. And I think for me, like it's a really... It was a really, really, um, it just was a moving time together. Awesome. And so we created a bunch of space after the sermon where we just told, we had our prayer team in the back and our prayer team is fantastic. They pray over mm. every seat in that room before every service. Like they just, awesome. and we just sang and like worshiped and we gave people opportunities to, you know, find a corner and just pray with your family or your small group. And, um, that That's was, awesome. that was kind of the ask, like, what, let's, let's actually see what would happen if God actually moved, if, if he was being serious when he said even greater things. Yeah. And the quote that I used from McKnight, which I thought was brilliant. He said, if you're genuinely open to the spirit, you will learn that you are open to a power unlike anything you've ever known. Many of us need to ponder why we are not more open to this kind of power. There is no reason to remain closed to it because the Bible speaks often of spirit prompted power and promises it to us. Mm. So I kind of took a, a moment to confess some of my own closeness. Yeah. Like yep. as a pastor, we assume like, oh, he's probably just always perfectly open. Yep. And I'm like, man, I close myself off to that so often. And then at the very end, we shared this video of this FedEx driver sort of 
recording on her cell phone this experience she had about a woman she delivered a package to and felt prompted to pray for her. How they just like wept and cried together for this really serious thing. And like those prompts sometimes will come in really surprising, mundane, dare yeah. I say, common spaces. Yeah. Are we actually open to it? Oh, that's good, man. It was really good. It was a oh, great Sunday, man. You preached to me there. That was really good. <laughs> I'm so glad that to hear it. was really good. You have one more chance to experience it. If you want to come out to the Naperville's Yellow Box tonight at 630. What are you serving? What's the meal? I don't know what the meal is. <laughs> that's a good question. Am I that guy now? <laughs> Listen, I, I'm from a family of nine, man. All I need to know is that there's food. There I don't even go. need to know what it is. <laughs> that's funny. That's well, funny. man, thanks for taking us to church today, yeah, Pastor absolutely. Brian. You I appreciate too. that. You You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hello, friends. Hello. What's happening? Just changing it up. That's a curveball right there. So we call it in the industry. Nobody calls it that. <laughs> I'm calling it a curveball. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted. You can text us. 68683 is the number. And then put CG for Common Good in the message body, followed by your question, thought, comment, or suggestion. Brian's pushing hard for a pun or an anecdote. Yes. We'll accept riddles even, oh. I think. <laughs> I'm running out of uh, synonyms for we'll take them all. <laughs> for anything that you want to share with us. And uh, one of the things that we've brought up uh, maybe too much at this point is that Brian and I are both pastors. Mm-hmm. And um, with that, there comes a number of pretty unique experiences Maybe we could do a whole segment sometime on just, like, weirdness of being a pastor. Uh, a, a show. Yeah, right. Because sometimes when I meet with other professionals, I'm like, oh, your job sounds so much more normal than mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that we've talked about and maybe even talked around a little bit is, like, how how much do pastors speak out about social issues? Yes. And I realize social issues is a huge category. So it could be anything from, like, local and national tragedy or like systemic abuses of exploitation, like where, how we navigate this. Uh, I'm finding more and more as I like talk with other pastors about this is kind of anyone's guess. There's no real rule book for how much you should or shouldn't say or speak out against. Some people feel very strongly about it. Others, honestly, I've asked this question to, and they're like, Oh, I've never really thought about that. Uh So to them, it's not a worry at all. And uh, this particular story that we found talked a lot about like nearly half of pastors worry about speaking out on social issues. They're yeah. worried mostly that they're going to offend people and, uh, you know, quote unquote, people could be people in your church or just people in your community. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm wondering, how do you, how do you fit in this? That you feel some of that, that weight and pressure? Yeah. And you and I were talking about, it. I think we feel it differently because uh, for me, when I read the headline, half of pastors this is in Christianity today, half of pastors worry speaking out on social issues because it will offend people. I totally get that. Hmm. I'm a peacekeeper. I'm a p- bit of a people pleaser. 
And uh, I want to be very careful about the things that I say. I guess I want to be, I'll say it this way. I want to make sure that I'm dying on the right hills, but sometimes that means I'm very hesitant to die on any hill. Oh, interesting. Uh, And so I'm more, uh, you know, laying all my cards on a table. I think oftentimes, and this isn't the right motivation, but oftentimes one of my motivations as a pastor uh, is to make sure nobody leaves. (laughs) So. Uh, when you dive into the deep end, and some pastors just like the fights. They like to get into it and right. really, and I get that. Uh, that's not my personality, and that's right. not me. And so, uh, and I do think in the hyper-political, politicized nature of our culture now with Donald Trump and the evangelicals and um, and and everything, uh, people are really on edge. Yeah. And so, especially in the church, if you say something that can even be perceived as <laughs> against Donald Trump or anything perceived four years ago, anything perceived to be pro Barack Obama, uh, you can really set yourself up, even though you might believe it. Yeah. And so right. my thing has always been, I'm not going to pretend that I don't believe this. I just might not share it with people unless I'm pressed by them or whatever. I share very little. I talk very little politics from the pulpit. And you might be out there going, well, you're missing a big opportunity. I very well might be. Hmm. But also, I think sometimes uh, the opposite can be true with a lot of pastors I know and people and that they want to pick a fight about everything. Totally. And so, therefore, you've lost the ear of people to the important thing. So I do think it's in the middle uh, is the answer. And I think I probably tend much more towards the not sharing anything. So I've had to sit my staff down. I have a pretty small staff, but I've had to sit multiple staff members down and tell them I'm uncomfortable with the things they're saying on Facebook. Hmm. Uh, and I have to think to myself, am I uncomfortable? What is the reason? And I always talk to them about your representation of the church. And you understand within our church, we're happy that there's a political spectrum. There's a racial spectrum. There's a even a belief spectrum. Hmm. And so we have to think about that when we are posting. You're not necessarily posting for yourself. You're posting as a representative of the church. And I take that very seriously. And so um, I'm going to be one on this particular topic where the issue is I should probably be willing to post about some more things than I am. I'm probably too cautious. Huh. Um, I'm guessing that is not your problem. <laughs> I'm guessing that is why not you, your issue. Why would you guess that, We've Brian Fromm? This has been a three-month relationship. That's a good man. point. Now, we're in a three-month relationship. I feel like I've pegged you pretty well. Touche. And it's not to say that I'm not actually really cautious yep. still and concerned with uh, not wanting to offend people. I still have all of the same insecurities and cautions. I yep. think uh, innately in me, I probably want to die on too many hills at times that, you know, Ian taking some time to cool down is usually a good idea, um, especially in the case of like, you know, we talked about the Covington Catholic Boys yep, yep. story a number of times. We're like seeing the first part of it, getting really fired up and then being grateful that I thought, well, maybe there's more to this. You know, that sometimes yeah. is really helpful. That's a helpful pause. But yep. I think, you know, what you were saying about this, uh, the answer is probably in the middle. I think the problem with that is that we often don't know if that is the answer, like you're saying. How do we know when it is time to speak yep. up? How do we know? How do we know the difference between uh, like healthy caution and cowardice? When yep. it's like, hey, on the other side of that, though, I've seen a number of friends tweet things like, "Hey, if your pastor doesn't bring this up tomorrow, leave that church." Yep. I'm like, yep. well, that's not totally that's not helpful. fair either, right? Yep. So I'm a big believer in like knowing your space too. So um, I've I've certainly I think the pulpit is a very different social space than Facebook too. or Twitter. And I think it needs to be. So it's not just hey, if you wouldn't. Say it in the pulpit. Don't say it on Twitter. I'm like, that's not a good rule of thumb either, I don't think. But I have to admit also some of my own cowardice for not speaking out because I'm afraid of who that might upset or who that might. However, 
I think that sometimes is a helpful way. And my honestly, my wife is a great barometer for these things. Okay. I've literally like read stuff out to her. I'm like, hey, I'm thinking of posting this. And she'll sort of look at me and say, is that the wisest move right now? <laughs> and just by the question, you're like, nope, nope, it's not. But that's the thing. My wife's also not a coward. Nope. Like she would absolutely, she she would be fueling the things. Hey, I, I think you have a responsibility as a, as a leader in this community mm. to say something about this. This is a big enough issue. And I, she, I'm so grateful for her wisdom and perspective to navigate that really good. because her MO isn't just uh, don't post that. That could be problematic. If it was always that, I'd be like, yep. well, when do we, but she's got such a good balance of, yep. I think you do actually have a responsibility, not just as a pastor and a Christ follower, but as someone, you know, who, who leads. And I think uh, that's where it gets really tricky for me because there is a worry like, Oh man, what if I really offend somebody? And then yep. I think the other side of that is, Maybe sometimes we need to be offended. Yep. Maybe sometimes I need to be rattled by what somebody else said, like kind of what you were saying and approaching your staff. Am I am I being a good lead pastor here, or yes. am I just disagreeing with their conclusion? And I want to see less of that in my Facebook feed. Yep. That's a hard balancing act, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, and I like I'm convicted. I've uh, again, there's such a fine line here between wisdom and cowardice that uh, I don't think I have a reason for this. But I've, I don't know if you have. I've never preached. I've preached pretty regularly for nine years. I've never preached on homosexuality. Hmm. I've never preached. I've never done. I should put it this way. I've never done a sermon series on social issues. Uh, oh, really? And I've had people push back on that. Like, I think you're, we need to be doing this. We need to be hearing from you. And I'm like, mm, maybe. Uh, and so maybe that's something worth thinking about. I don't, have you ever? You ever done a sermon series around hot-button topics? I've done hot-button theological topics, yep. but uh, never really social topics. Yeah, we have. And a couple of years ago, one of the ways that we approached it at the Yellow Box, um, at Community uh, in general, was we had a series called Conversations, and they mm. were pre-recorded interviews with sort of experts in these fields. Oh, so we really tackled um, racism, refugees, and sexuality. Um, so it was people that we really respected and navigated that um, with, I think, a ton of wisdom and caution. Um, but, I, yeah, I have personally taught on some of these issues, and I'll tell you why. Because I believe Jesus was concerned with them. Agreed. And I cannot shake the fact that, okay, as much as I, I want to be diplomatic and wise with whatever platform or resources we've been gifted, I also can't get around specifically issues of exploitation, of mm-hmm. abuse of the marginalized. For me, it's not like, a, oh, that's not really our thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, if, you, if you're a Jesus person, it's your thing. Yes. And how we go about that, obviously, there's a myriad of different responses. Exactly. But I don't know, for me... It's totally competitive to say, I'm a Jesus person. I'm just not, I ju- I'm not concerned with social issues or yep. um, the exploitation of the vulnerable and the marginalized isn't like, quote, our thing. Yep. I'm like, and I, I don't think you get opt out of that. And I've certainly tackled racism and other um, topics in the midst of talking about a passage. Jesus says this. I've just never done a series or whatever. I'm just like, hey, hey, come this Sunday, we're going to talk about racism. Yeah. Come this Sunday, we're going to talk about homosexuality. Come yep. this Sunday. Uh, and again, I don't know. And maybe know. there's some wisdom to that, to be honest. Or I don't know. cowardice. I don't know. I, I wrestle back and forth a little bit with that. Like, to go back to the article, I just think that I'm I'm one who tends towards um, towards caution in this probably too far. Hmm. Uh, and swinging it the other way, I think, is also dangerous. So, Well, and I've been grateful that, you know, for our organization, there's been a number of people who have walked alongside me to help me think through more uh, maturely, more intelligently yep. about when and how and in what capacity. And I think that's given me a lot to think just in the three years that I've been a part of community yep. to to really reframe some of the, not only how often, but in what ways and which things to say, hey, it's probably better to bite your tongue here yeah. so that you can more wisely choose which hills you are actually going to die on, which 
I think uh, my guess is there's going to be a lifelong journey for both yeah. of us. I don't want to die in any hills. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fair. painful. I appreciate you admitting that. <laughs> well, coming up next, we're going to talk to Dr. Fuzz Rana. He's the vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe. And we're going to talk specifically about a scientific case for the image of God. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. Plus, it's podcasted, so wherever you get your podcast, you can listen there. And now you can text us. So text the number 68683, and then in the message, first type CG for Common Good, and then your question, your thought, if you have suggestions for topics, things you'd like for us to go after. Or you could do what that one person did last week and just write, Hi. That's true. We did have someone last week go, hi, Brian and Ian. So if that was you, thanks so much Thank for the shout. Thank you. happy. <laughs> well, I am absolutely thrilled to have on the phone right now Dr. Fuzz Rana. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. That's our pleasure. Let me tell you all a little bit about who Dr. Rana is. He's the vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He is the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who is Adam?, Creating Life in the Lab, The Cell's Design in Dinosaur Blood, and the Age of the Earth. He holds a Ph.D. in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. You can learn more at reasons.org. And uh, one of the things that Brian and I talk about a lot on this show is this idea of the image of God and the mm-hmm. Imago Day. And because for us as pastors, it comes back to that a lot for us. So I'm just curious, because it seems like you also are interested in this topic. I think we typically hear like philosophical evidence for the image of God. Can you share with us some examples of some of the scientific evidence of the image of God? Yeah, I sure can. You know, and, uh, you know, people might think it's strange to even talk about scientific evidence when we think about the image of God, because it's this very important theological concept. Mm. Uh, And you might think about, you know, making arguments or having discussion in, in theological terms. But from my perspective, there's a very serious, challenge from science to the image of God concept, and that comes from this notion of human evolution, because human evolution looks to to denigrate humanity, really. We're just animals. There's nothing exceptional or special about us. And so given how prominent science is in our world today, we really need to speak that language as Christians and be able to show that there's good scientific reasons to think that, that human beings are made in, in God's image. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick one, what would you say for you is the most powerful scientific argument for the image of God? Yeah, well, you know, one that I think uh, to me is is really uh, astounding, and that is that there's a growing number of evolutionary biologists who work in the question of human origins who now agree that human beings are exceptional. This is called human exceptionalism, and this is radical because— For 160 years, the evolutionary paradigm has argued that human beings are really only different in degree, not kind from other creatures. We really are no different. And now you've got scientists that work in that evolutionary framework that are not necessarily friends to the Christian worldview who are agreeing that human beings really are exceptional, that we stand apart, that we're different in kind. And they're dragging their feet and they're kicking and screaming towards this conclusion. But this is what the data says. And what seems to separate us as human beings from all other creatures is our capacity for symbolism. Mm. In other words, 
We can represent the world with symbols. We can manipulate those symbols in our minds, and we can, by, and we can communicate the symbols through language and music and art. No other creature can do that. And that we, because we can manipulate the symbols, we can do abstract problem solving. We can think about the future, and we can process the past, and this separates us. And, and so to me, what's you know, crazy about this is that evolutionary biologists, in effect, hostile witnesses, if you will, have to agree that, that human beings are exceptional. And for me as a Christian, I see symbolism as being a manifestation of the image of God. Okay, so that that's absolutely fascinating to yes. me because my particular journey over the last probably 20 years or so has certainly taken some dips and dives based on what I'm reading or what I'm listening to. And as I mentioned, Brian and I are both pastors, and one of the things that we both get asked a lot is how do I build bridges then between this conversation or conversations like these with my skeptical friends? Because that's our hope for the church is that we're not just sort of having a holy huddle and that we're not interacting with people that disagree with us. Like, can you share maybe some insight or wisdom or even resources, websites people can go to uh, in, an eff- in an effort to build some bridges to have a healthy dialogue around some of these topics? Well, you know, as our world is becoming more and more secular, science becomes something of very high currency. And in fact, so many people think of science, and then the next word they think of is truth. Mm. They, they equate science with truth. And so if we can show people... That, that human beings are exceptional, as I described, and that, that scientists themselves are acknowledging that we're exceptional, and then you can show how that concept connects to the image of God, you now have built a bridge from science and the language that people are speaking today, what people view as credible today, to a very critical concept in Christianity. And as you were saying earlier, it takes you right to the foot of the cross, yeah. because it's the image of God that that uh, it allows us to be in that relationship with our Creator. Would you say, you brought up before that uh, there are, as you call them, secular scientists who are kind of starting to see this or agree this. Would you say, um, as a Christian scientist, is the secular world becoming more antagonistic to kind of your thoughts and, and the things you're saying here? Uh, or is it actually becoming more of an agreeable space? Uh, it, it's actually, sadly, becoming more and more antagonistic. Mm. Uh, and... Um, you know, and it, it really becomes, at the end of the day, a, a clash, if you will. I hate to use that word, but sure. a clash of worldviews. And, and so we see the world differently as Christians, and, and non-Christians see the world differently from us. And many times we, we talk past each other because of really very different worldview commitments. But this is where, again, I think science can become a powerful common ground that can hopefully begin to help people see that there's scientific credibility to the Christian worldview, and maybe the reason you have rejected Christianity isn't so much because of the evidence against Christianity, it's because you just haven't viewed that evidence from a, a, a Christian worldview perspective. Okay, so that's, that's actually a lot of the heartbeat of our show, is to create space for that conversation. And we've had plenty of people on the show. In fact, Brian and I don't even always agree on the same things, and what we're finding is even modeling healthy disagreement seems to be really helpful for people to actually lean in rather than leaning apart. Like you're saying, as the antagonism grows, um, how can we better like lead the way? Because, you know, your, your thesis here is like, 
making a scientific case for the image of God. And I imagine like Brian and I are like cheering that on, mm-hmm. but I also imagine that's probably maybe uh, other people are having the opposite response. How can we be better at creating space then uh, to have these conversations and in what forums should we be having these conversations? Because I, like I'm looking at your bio, you know, <laughs> you're, you have a doctorate in chemistry with emphasis in biochemistry. Like I'm just assuming you're roughly 8,000 times smarter than I am. <laughs> so for anyone who's feeling like I just don't have the, I don't have the right information. I don't have, I don't have enough content or whatever. How would you encourage people to like take a deeper dive into some of these really important conversations? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I think everything that we need that we do when we have these conversations should be shaped by love. So That's I would good. always say, never start presenting evidences for, for the Christian faith or reasons why other people shouldn't hold to their worldview until you really have uh, in your heart recognize a, a sense of love for that person that you're trying to reach. That's good. Love should sh- shape everything, and that will create in and of itself a very different type of dialogue. So we're not trying to win an argument. We're really trying to love another person enough mm. to answer their questions and or to respond to their objections. And then remember that it, it, you're eating a, an elephant, so take a bite at a time. Don't get discouraged. <laughs> you know, by how, how overwhelming things can be, but just start someplace and, and gain a little knowledge and gain a little bit more, more knowledge and try it out and see what worked and what didn't. And over time, you discover that you, you, you're capable of really engaging in some significant, meaningful conversations with people, really responding to their questions in a way that is winsome and, and, and uh, makes people really, I think, want to know more about what Christianity is about. Mm. Well, we're really grateful you're here. Uh, closing up, one more question for you. Oftentimes, um, people of faith will take kind of a, an attitude that says science is kind of the enemy, right? Science, we're kind of against science. One of the most helpful things I ever had a prophet Wheaton tell me is that all truth is God's truth. And so we want to, you know, science is going to help us understand God more. Could you speak to the Christians out there who may be skeptical of science or skeptical of things like that, but instead give an encouragement to us that says, no, these are helpful to uh, help us understand our creator more. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, all truth is God's truth, and, and God, according to Scripture, has revealed himself to us through nature itself. We see God's fingerprints in nature, and we can begin to get a, a glimpse, a very small glimpse of who God is from his creation. And so science is the study of God's creation, so yeah. we would expect if we understand it properly, it's going to always affirm our faith. That's fantastic. We've well, been listening to Dr. Fuzz Rana. He is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. You can learn more. I encourage you to learn more at reasons.org. Doctor, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank really you. appreciate it. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. That music you're hearing is my band from high school. Modest Mouse. (laughs) Anyone who's, like, joining us mid-show is wondering why you keep yelling Modest Mouse. (laughs) And I love just imagining the confusion on people's face. Like, is Brian okay? Is he just yelling? I'm just yelling, Modest Mouse. (laughs) Why are mice needing to be more modest? I don't understand. That's funny. You, if you'd like to, can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. 
You can also text us at 68683, and then before your message, write CG for Common Good. And uh, any feedback you want to give or any suggestions for the show, we would love to hear from you. Because uh, the goal is for this to be a conversation not just between Brian and I, yes. but to actually serve as a space for people to wrestle into stuff that doesn't have easy answers. And this next story, I think, is a perfect example of that where I'm like, even diving into it, I'm I'm not sure I know what I believe. So it's right. a story that we found on uh, Christian Post. And uh, here's the headline. I'm just going to read the headline and throw it to Brian. Go for it. It says, white people should start joining majority black churches, says multi-ethnic ministry director. What do you think? So this came out of a conference called MISO Alliance's Awakening Conference. It says, if racial reconciliation is to ever occur within the American church, more white people need to make the leap to join majority black churches. There also must be a greater understanding of both the black and white church and a reexamination of the dynamics that make multi-ethnic churches successful, said pastors and theologians during Friday's panel discussion. Multi-ethnic congregations are not a boutique enterprise, they are stressed, but something vital Mm. to the witness and the mission. And that I believe, like we've got to figure out a way, uh, because, you know, the old saying always goes, the most segregated time in our country is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, that there are predominantly white churches and black churches I just don't know. This feels like putting the cart before the horse, just saying, hey, white people, you need to start going to black churches. Okay. And I guess what I'd want to do, you and I are both uh, very much white pastors. What I'd want to hear from <laughs> is— by very much. If they saw us right now. <laughs> what I would want to hear is, um, like, is this patronizing? Or is mm. this—like, what posture is this article? And it doesn't really go into it as we read it. And what posture is it asking people to go there to just go and attend the churches? Is this is this patronizing? Is this um, I guess what I'd want to have is to discuss it with a black pastor and say, hey, would you be excited about this? Hmm. I have heard of a lot of really good um, partnerships increasingly going on between African-American churches and um, more predominantly white churches where there seems to be um, this this partnership that is completely on equal terms where they'll go meet at that church one time and go meet at this church. My point is there seems to be some more creativity to, Hey, more white people go to black churches. Like Hmm. one of the reasons that there's a lot of white churches and black churches is because, you know, a lot of times our geography is set up that way, which is also sad, but um, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot more nuance to this for me at at my first blush than just, Hey, start attending each other's churches. And then all of our multi-ethnic problems are going to go away. Well, and I don't know that the article is saying quite that, that they just go away. I think it's more presenting it as a starting point, which I have really appreciated. You know, I had a number of professors in undergrad that would encourage us strongly attend worship services that look way different than what you're used to. And one of them in Elgin, Illinois, was a predominantly black community that I was, I clearly stood out and I learned so much from my time there. Um, but I also do wonder, like, I think part of what, even in your response, uh, what it's revealing is that two white guys maybe shouldn't be the only people having this conversation right now. <laughs> like for us to say, yeah, should we, shouldn't we? What do you think? Caucasian pastor, Brian, as Caucasian <laughs> pastor Ian bounce back and forth. Like I do wonder, yeah. How, how, one, how is that perceived Two. Like, does that become uh, more novelty than anything? Right. Because it, it, I think it absolutely needs to be more than just simply where I attend uh, Sunday mornings. And I think that applies to a number of conversations. It isn't just about, um, like, the shape of your liturgy or the, you know, the volume of your band. And if we're, like, I have a buddy who founded a church in Memphis, Tennessee. His name's Michael Wilkerson. 
uh, engaged church, brilliant church. He's a white dude that set out to start a really intentionally multi-ethnic church. Mm -hmm. He would be a a fascinating conversation because he will share really bluntly some of the uh, advantages and disadvantages of being a white dude in the South trying specifically to start a multi-ethnic church. But he loves it. And it's it sounds so it's like messy and it's raw and they, there's still a bunch of stuff they're figuring out. But like the more that I hear from him, it is way more than just let's let's uh, right. Im, let's implant. Let's just sort of parachute in some white people here and some people of color over there. And uh, for I think the longer that he's engaging with this particular this particular conversation, he's realizing how much more complex it is than he ever anticipated. Yeah, because ultimately you would want to say, I loved one of my favorite things at college too, was at Wheaton. They had us, you know, for an entire semester, go to a different type of church, uh, including, you know, diff, you know, an African-American church, a Pentecostal church, right. a Greek Orthodox church, and just to kind of then come back and talk about it. But I guess one thing I would say is, uh, you know, stepping back from, from kind of their premise here, I would say this, and I think you and I can agree and have a, have a conversation about this is, that the church needs to be at the forefront of dealing with um, racism and segregation within our culture. And oftentimes throughout our history, sadly, church has lagged behind. Yeah. And I think that becomes the more interesting conversation. I think if the church, uh, big C church starts doing a better job at that, then these other things are going to work themselves out. Totally. Uh, I think that that black and white people will begin begin worshiping together out of an outflow of the theology and not again this is this feels more fruit to me like all right you go to that church you go to that church and boom all our problems are no they're not yeah right uh, but i do think the question is why is it in general that the church tends to be the ones that lag in this or do you agree with that does the church tend to lag in this well and and there was a number of convicting parts for me early in ministry where I was frustrated at the lack of diversity in our church community, and it wasn't until I took an honest look at the actual community we lived in that exactly. I realized our church is pretty representative. It's it's wider than I would have liked, but it actually is pretty representative of the city yep. we're actually in. Is it disingenuous for me to want it to look way more diverse than the actual city that I lived in? Yep. And it was you know it was one wise church planner. He goes, if that's what you want, then move to a more diverse neighborhood. Right. Don't just try to like make yours this little silo. And I thought. I just thought of this, actually. I, I didn't ask his permission, so I'm just going to go, go for it. It's my brother, uh, and he and his family are in Detroit. He's and, not listening. Uh, he's just, <laughs> either way, I think uh, I think he and his wife are doing such a beautiful, brilliant job of raising their kids um, in, in the city of Detroit. And so he posted this uh, this morning. He said, in the middle of a Macklemore song, Marlo, age five, said, uh, I think that boy singing has dark skin. When asked why, she wasn't quite sure, but started by saying, I think because of his singing... I showed her a picture, and she was surprised and amused. Hi, i never seen a boy with light skin who sounds like that when he sings. And he goes on to say, My kids are not colorblind because colorblindness is unnatural and corrosive, but they do prejudge situations and people because that is something the brain does constantly. This was an opportunity for us to talk about how assumptions of people are incomplete at best and often damaging. We've, mm. we've been talking lately about why people call us white, when our skin is actually more peachish and, and how, how many people have been uh, or have killed many others simply because the victim's skin was darker. So if my kids make a comment 
about your race that feels obtuse, please know that they're just learning about their world and that we encourage them to lovingly notice how wonderful people come in all kinds of colors, shapes, heights, statuses, and abilities. It's good. I was just so proud of my brother for that because he's, he's relearning a lot of these things through the eyes of his children. And even just the wisdom to have sort of a caution, like, Hey, my kid makes an observation. They're like working this out themselves. And I thought, man, it's, we're not going to make any progress unless we're actually willing to have some of these probably uncomfortable conversations. And it maybe starts by attending worship services of people mm-hmm. that look and talk and act way different than you. But I think you're right on. I think it has to be more than that. And I do think, I think you made a very interesting point, an important point to bring context into it. Like, you know, we're raising our kids in a very, uh, a very white suburb, and that's going to work against them as they get older. And that's going to, that's a barrier we've got to bridge, right? Versus your brother in the Detroit area. My guess is their area looks very different. Mm-hmm. My point is the church needs to be having these conversations and, and believers need to be having conversations with their kids, regardless of the setting that you live in. It's yeah. going to look different. Um, it's going to feel different. But but the at the core, and we just had this conversation about the image of God. At the core is a conversation about the image of God and and that's why I think as churches, man, I'm tying all of our segments right here. Well right? done. Going back to the one about having uncomfortable conversations. I think church living, you know, I, I pastor a church in a very white area of the suburbs of Chicago still need to be talking about racism, whether it's whether it's uncomfortable or absolutely, not. Absolutely. And we need to be talking about that in the context of the image of God. And that's why it's important. That's why this feels a little surfacey to me. Go to the churches. Well, there's not a lot of, uh, quote unquote, those types of churches mm. in where I live, but there's a lot of racism where I live, I'm sure, and there's a lot of conversations that Ooh. need to be had that Come I on. think we can be having as the church. And I think that would allow the church, regardless of your context, to lead in this and not not more lag behind. That Man, that'll preach, Pastor Brian. Bring, bring in the heat today, man. It's Monday. Shoot. It's left over from yesterday. All right, so at least five heavy topics tackled today. So yep. let's land the plane the way we always do Keith. with just a little bit of lightheartedness <laughs> that our producers found on the Internet. We're going to read sight unseen, so it'll probably catch us off guard. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. As always, we like to just end the show with some insanity. You know what? Lately, a lot more of these stories, though, have been more like heartfelt. They really have been. Which I kind of appreciate. And Keith is getting sensitive. So just if you're wondering, Keith is the executive producer. So Keith and Josh are producers. Pick these stories, and they're face down on our desk right now. Not Keith and Josh. The stories. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) They're not even in the room. That's a good point. (laughs) They like to lie on the floor while we do these segments. So we've not seen them. We're just going to flip them over and read them sight unseen. So if we start giggling uh, halfway through them, that's why. But before we do, Brian, how about this weather? Unbelievable today. Wow. I know you're mocking me because I said, let's talk about the weather. But (laughs) it is gorgeous out today. I'm happy. It's like always your go-to. Welcome to the show. Weather. Look at this weather. Look at it. It's uh, cold out there today. That's cold. Getting into it. All right, I'm going first. You're like a water cooler guru, man. From Florida. Massive 17 foot long python found in Florida Preserve. It was carrying 73 eggs. Ugh. The female reptile is the largest ever caught at Big Cypress National Preserve. It was carrying 73 developing eggs at the time and weighed 140 pounds. Uh, an August report from the Smithsonian Magazine said an invasive Burmese python hybrid can now be found across more than 1,000 square miles of South Florida. 
The big cypress snake was caught using new tracking technology, the National Preserve said. Authorities use radar radio transmitters to track male pythons. The male's locations are then used to find breeding animals. Uh, females. 17 foot long and it had 73 eggs in it. That is scary. No, thank you. Enough is enough. <laughs> I have had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. I feel like we've done a snakes on the plane. <laughs> I still love it, though. <laughs> I love it. All right, Washington, D.C. Gosh, this feels uh, unsafe. Yeah. Fisher Price warns about rock and play after reports of deaths. Thanks a lot, Keith. <laughs> give, me, give me the Fisher Price this death is one. one. Fisher Price and the United States Consumer Product Safety Commission are warning people about the company's rock and play due to reports of deaths when infants roll over. Why? You're going to want to end this one fast. Reading this, according to a, re- a release from the CPSC, infants typically begin to roll over at around three months. I'm just gonna I'm gonna bail on the story right now. Let's get that sound effect. Disneyland in 1956. Nothing worked. Yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. <laughs> That's true. That's I got the linkage between that clip oh, and that story is you terrifying. You thought the last one was dark. Wait for this one out oh, of boy. Florida. Experts say your dog doesn't like to be hugged. Say it ain't so. Your dog would prefer if you did not participate in National Hug Your Dog Day on April 10th. That's a made-up day. <laughs> not April 10th. I was going to say April 10th is day. a real day. <laughs> Dr. Stanley Corrin, a canine expert and professor professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia, conducted a study analyzing 250 pictures of dogs being hugged and noticed signs of discomfort. In 81.6% of the photographs analyzed, dogs expressed at least one sign of discomfort, stress, or anxiety, according uh, to the study. Only 7.6% of the photographs showed dogs that were comfortable being hugged. I call this fake news. (laughs) Can I have a hug? No. Give me a hug. No way. Come here. I'm not coming over there. Let's go. Forget it. Pronto. <laughs> should we be making a dog joke with Joe Biden here? Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Did Ryan. I, should I not have done that? No. I'm not going to do it. Weren't you just talking about no, it? I don't, I do I don't it. like to speak out against social issues because I, I don't want to offend people. I do, but funny ones are good. Oh, my word. Okay, <laughs> what this article actually doesn't unpack is how much, because I don't have a dog. So what's the anxiety if I hug, like, your dog? It'll bite you. Is that well? Okay, good point. Now my, dog, my dog is in the 7.6 here. She will cuddle with anything, anybody, yeah, you anytime. Yeah, keep telling yourself that. Oh, it's true. California. Woman discovers trash blowing a long road is actually $14,000 cash. Of course it is. <laughs> what would you do if you found $14,000 in cash? Keep it. That's the, of course, we know that Brian has no moral compass whatsoever. That's the decision an Auburn, California woman had to make after she stopped to pick up what, at first glance, she thought was garbage. I was doing what I should hope someone else would do for me, said Jill James, who found the money. James was driving on Wednesday afternoon when she saw what appeared to be waste papers on the road. She got out thinking I was being punked or something. (laughs) There was hundreds of bills, hundreds, twenties, and tens lying on the ground. There was a little bit of a wind, so I was literally just grabbing them off the ground, trying to hold on to them. I had so many in my hands, I couldn't fit them all. (laughs) Girlfriend's gonna get paid. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Last last one. one. Pennsylvania man finds stranger broke into his home, ate cereal, fell asleep on floor surrounded by napkins. Oh my god. Police say a Pennsylvania man awoke to find a stranger sleeping on his kitchen floor surrounded by torn up napkins. They arrested a 60-year-old man, I would have guessed younger, named Brian Smith. (laughs) The Altoona mayor reports Smith was unconscious and surrounded by destroyed napkins. The homeowner told police it also appeared someone had eaten some of his Crave cereal. He told police all the doors and windows were locked when he went to sleep, but noticed one of the doors was wide open the next morning. Uh, 
Police say that the man had used drugs, okay, and was unable to explain how or why he entered the room. He's been charged with burglary and trespass. There was no attorney listed on the documents. Oh, boy. What a note to end on. Mom, there's a weird smell and a lot of cursing coming from the basement, and Dad's upstairs. (sighs) Always. That's Simpsons, right? Always one Simpsons. Uh, Yeah, that sounds about right. Well... Never a dull moment here at the Common Good. It's been a good day. Beautiful weather. It has been a good day. We hope you join us tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. or listen to us at 1160hope.com. My name is Ian along Brian Fromm. Have a great day, everyone. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.